morning. You may open your Bibles to Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 2, and we'll be looking at uh, verses 1 through 3, and as you stand, we'll be reading the scriptures together, Ephesians chapter 2, 1 through 3. This is the word of the Lord. And you were dead in your trespasses and sin, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, and the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we all too formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Let's pray. Father. Thank you for this day. I pray now that your spirit would illumine our minds. Father, there's a a serious problem in that we're dead in our trespasses of sin. And I I pray that we can understand this problem and that the understanding would move past just intellectual knowledge, but a belief that will move us to either accept Christ as our Savior or for those who are saved that will live that um, uh, there's a serious problem, a consequence of being a child of wrath. Father, there are millions of people who haven't heard of Jesus Christ. And there are unsaved neighbors and family members, and I pray that as we believe this, it will motivate us to share the gospel. Father, I pray that um, you'll use your word in our lives, that your spirit would conform us more to the image of your Son, and less like ourselves. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. You may be seated. Uh, I'm very thankful for Gary being willing to lead the music. Uh, Yesterday I got a phone call from Kirthi. He's uh, in New Jersey. His uh, plane got canceled, and uh, the phone call was, I think, yesterday afternoon. And and so then he called Gary, and Gary very quickly... uh, was willing to to do that, and so I'm very thankful uh, that he was able to step up and come and do this uh, on such short notice. We are in Ephesians chapter 2, and uh, we saw last week that uh, these verses here are working in conjunction from what was previously mentioned in chapter 1, verse 19, which is this um, surpassing greatness of power of God to be working. He worked in Christ to raise him, to seat him, and to make him head over the church. This is the surpassing greatness of God's power worked in Christ, but not only did this surpassing greatness of power work in Christ, uh, but it's now, as as Paul is mentioning, is working in us. Now this is a a very long sentence that we see in chapter 2. It extends all the way to verse 7. Uh, verse 1 through 7, where the subject is found in verse 4, and the verbs are found in verse 5 of the action that the subject is doing. Uh, here we see that uh, this, this problem, this very serious problem, is that we are dead. And what we're going to be looking at today is that we must praise God and live for God because God's great power worked in us who were dead. We must praise God and live for Him because God's great power 
worked in us who were dead. Paul presents in verse 1 that we were dead. Uh, Being dead, that's the condition in which we were. Uh, He's addressing them, and it applies also to us. Uh, This death is um, the idea of separation. So while we are alive, we're born alive, we're born separate from God, uh, totally separate. And there's nothing in the world that a person can do to get even a, uh, an inch, or half an inch, quarter inch, uh, closer to God. There's nothing on your part that you can do to somehow work your way there. Uh, there there's not some type of work of justice, of righteousness that you can do. Uh, any type of work of righteousness on your part only condemns you more. It only shows your rebellion against God's sovereign plan of having salvation through Jesus Christ. So the, this problem that Paul is presenting here is not a problem that a person can solve on their own. How many have seen um, a person that has drowned to death pull themselves out of, uh, of the water and perform CPR on themselves? It doesn't happen that way. It just doesn't. As much as we would like to see that type of imagery, it just doesn't happen. There's no way of giving yourself life. Furthermore, the problem is is not resolved collectively either. As in, if we all come together and we put all our brain power together and we put forth an effort, maybe we can cause life. That There's no solution even collectively. So there's no solution individual. And there's no collective solution to this problem that Paul is presenting. And it's the problem. It's the problem by which all other problems are defined. There's a separation, a spiritual deadness to God. And this deadness affects us. Now, as we're looking at this, we're seeing that there's going to be some things that these dead people do. And the first is that the dead walk according to Satan's influence. The dead walk according to Satan's influence, and we'll see that in verses, uh, verse 2. Now these dead, the dead that we see in, in verse 1, they're dead and they're in their trespasses of sin. This is not a causative, as in they did sin and now they're dead, but rather that they are dead and what is wrapped around them is this, um, their sins, their transgressions, and their sins. And so he, he, he's referring back to these people. And he says in, in verse 2, In which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of air, of the spirit that now were working in the sons of disobedience. Now, uh, at some former time, at some time in the past, the, and it could have been a long time ago, as in when Paul first arrived there in Ephesus and started preaching the gospel and these people got saved, it could have been a week ago, they, they get this letter and they're like, yeah, a week ago I accepted Christ as, as my Savior. But sometime in the past, this is how you walked. It, this verb walk, uh, can be understood literally, as in uh, the, the action a person does to get from one place to another, they're, they're walking. In this idea of walking, there's a combination of, of two things that are going on. Um, 
So if you're going to walk, you have, um, first of all, you have stability. And so then you have chaos when you lift up your leg. And, and then you, um, you have stability. And then you have chaos. You lift up and then stability. So that combination of, of chaos, stability, chaos, stability happening in, the, in a rhythmic section, uh, uh, not section, uh, sequence. That's a, someone could read my mind and tell me what I was thinking. In the sequence, as long as you're doing that in a sequence, you move forward. That uh, Moving forward. Now, <clears throat> when you think about that, there, there are some people, as they get older, this idea of, of chaos they really don't like. They start keeping their feet kind of closer to the ground. In fact, they kind of just do this like shuffle thing, right? You know, they don't want to lift up their feet. They don't like the idea of chaos. But, but it takes both stability and chaos to make movement forward. And, and it takes uh, the combination of both being done. Eugene Peterson said when he was defining faithfulness, he said it's a long obedience in the same direction. A long obedience in the same direction. Uh, what you end up having is some people like to just live in chaos. You know, these people that live in chaos, uh, they, they, they don't move forward. Everything is a, is a problem. Everything, the house is always burning. You can't be expecting them to help out in anything because in, their life is in chaos. And so they, they can't do anything. They don't grow. Everything is just, ah, all the time. Some people want to live in this area of stability. But, but you don't grow in the area of stability. God calls you to, uh, this, this Wednesday we're going to have uh, Janssens who are missionaries in, in the Philippines. From what I understand, they started this uh, Filipino Baptist church that's right here on Steubner Airline as you're going to HEB. Uh, they're coming Wednesday to tell us about their ministry. Uh, we heard about this ministry in France. And uh, we already have one family dedicated to go. I mean, he, the son volunteered the whole family to go. So that, praise the Lord for that. Uh, but hearing about this ministry in the Philippines, some might say, I'm not going there. That, that's too much chaos. The, the, the electrical plugs are even different from the ones we use here. Their food is different. Their language is different. I, I'm not going over there. That's just too much chaos. It's just too much. I've got my house almost paid for. My, 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 well, let's, let's not kid around. I still got a lot to pay on my car. But the house is almost paid for. I can't introduce that type of chaos in my life. It's, it's that sequence of chaos and stability that a person moves forward. Now, that's in a very literal sense about walking. Uh, Paul uses the idea of of walking in a metaphorical sense, which has this idea of how one conducts their life, how you behave, what, what's the habit of your conduct. It, it's used seven times in Ephesians, and, and each of them has this metaphorical sense. For example, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, uh, we are supposed to walk in, in the good works that he has prepared for us. Uh, we see it in, in chapter 4, Verse 1, he, after he goes through all this doctrine, he says, Therefore I, a prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you have been called. That you walk uh, according to how you have been called. How have you been called? 
You should be living, behaving, conducting yourself according to that way. In Ephesians chapter uh, 4, verse 17, he tells them, don't, don't be like how the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind. Don't, don't, don't behave yourself like that. Don't conduct yourself that way. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 2, uh, it tells us to walk in the love of Christ. And uh, as he gave himself up as a sacrifice, we're supposed to conduct ourselves in that same manner. That's how we're supposed to be behaving. That's our behavior. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 8, and there's also the uh, imperative of walking as children of light. And in Ephesians 5.15, it tells us that uh, we walk carefully, not as the unwise walk. Uh, so here he's using this metaphor language of how we conduct our life, which you formerly walked, and this walking was according to, uh, in accordance with, uh, with conformity towards something. Now, we walked in conformity with, with something specific, which is to the course of this world. This, this present age. Now, when we look at this present age, this, this time frame he's talking about, he's talking about this present age of, of, this, uh, of this world. And, and when we think about the world, we've got to have to define it a little bit. What is he talking about when he says that you're walking according to uh, the, the world, as he says here, um, the course of this world? Is he talking about the globe? What is he talking about? Now, you might think, why do we have to define the word world? I mean, that seems pretty self-evident what the world is. You know, we, we all know what the world is. Well, uh, world is, is um, the first definition, if you look up this word, the first definition is uh, something that is um, decorated or put in a certain order. Um, it's where we get the word cosmetics from. It has this idea of putting something in an order, putting it uh, organized in a fashion. And you would think about the word cosmetic comes from this, this world. Uh, it can be used for this planet. For example, in, in 1 Corinthians 14.10, it's used of the, the planet, the world. Uh, in 1 Peter 3.3, it has more of this idea of adornment or decoration. Uh, and world can also be used of people. John 3.16, for God so loved. He's not talking about this, this ground. He's talking about the world, the people that live in this world. So when we look at this verse here in chapter 2, verse 2, and it says that they were walking according to the course of this world, what is he referring to? That we were going around in circles as the world goes around in circles? No, that, that doesn't seem to make any sense. Uh, we're, we were acting in accordance with how the people of this world act. That, that, could be, that could be a definition, that could be a way that we understand it. Except contextually it tells us that this world that we were acting in accordance was was according to the prince of the power of the air, of Satan. So here now we have to see that this is really referring to a, set, a certain order, a certain set of priorities. We used to walk according to a certain organized set of priorities that goes in line with, according to, the prince of the power of the air. Now this is kind of using a, a title for who Satan is. Uh, Satan is, is mentioned by other things. For example, in 2 Corinthians chapter 
4, verse 4, he's called the God of this world. And in 1 Peter uh, 5a, he is uh, called a roaring lion. But here he's called the prince of uh, the prince of the power of the air. Now, when we think about this, this uh, metaphor for uh, him, this illustration, this figure of speech, you, you know, you think about air, and it's everywhere. It, it permeates all things, does it not? You, you breathe it in, and it then goes through your whole body, and it's all has oxygen throughout. I mean, you, you don't just, it doesn't just go to your lungs, and then it's done. It, rather, it, as you breathe, it permeates all of you. And so there's that idea where this prince of the air, it doesn't just infiltrate you, it, it, it totally permeates you. But then it also kind of gives some clarity as to why over in Ephesians chapter uh, 6, in verse 11, he's talking about the armor of God. In verse 17, he tells us to put on a helmet because there's an attack from the air and you need a helmet of salvation to protect you against this Satan that is against us. Now, as it says here in this verse, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. The sons of disobedience. Here this uh, word disobedience, it, it's, a, it's a word that's kind of unique in how it's a disobedience. It, it's never used, this word is never used as one person disobeying another person. Not, not in that relationship. And it's not like uh, in, in relationship of um, uh, an animal disobeying the, the, the owner. For example, uh, cats never come when you call them, right? So you say, you're kitty, 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 kitty. And what does the cat do? It looks at you and turns away and goes the other way, right? Like, I'm never coming to you. Ha, 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 ha. Um, it, it's never used in that form of disobedience. It's always used in disobeying God. Th this word is always used in disobedience to God. And it kind of, it has this disobedience because it comes from this connotation of a disbelief. As the person disbelieves something, they are not willing to obey it because they just don't trust it. Uh, for example, if I told you, you need to raise your feet up right now because there is a huge snake underneath your chair. Not a single one of you moved. And the reason you didn't move is because you did not believe. Uh, you did not believe what I said. Th this is that idea. There is a lack of belief, and this lack of belief led to a, a, a disobedience. They, they didn't apply it to their own life. Now, as we look at this, these uh, sons of disobedience is also mentioned in chapter 5, verse 6. And over in chapter 5, verse 6, it says, Do not uh, let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God has come upon the sons of disobedience. The end result of being a son of disobedience is that you have God's wrath upon you. God is angry. His, his wrath is as if you had a bullseye on you. And, and God never messes. And his wrath is going to be delivered onto you. Now, the dead walk according to the influence of Satan. And I think we can apply this as we think about Satan has a certain order in this world. He has a certain list of priorities that don't, don't really align with God's priorities. 
Now, as we look at, for example, the world's priorities, they have certain things that sound good. Uh, there seems, as you listen to the news, there, there seems to be a, a, a huge focus on the priority of justice, uh, of seeking out justice. But never once is this justice tethered to God's righteousness. It, it, it's always a justice that's dependent on whatever situation they're in. It's, it's not attached to God. So it's not God's justice. Rather, it's whatever situation it is, they're the ones deciding the standard of right and wrong. And that's the priority, whatever seems right in that situation. There also seems to be a, a huge priority on safety, and, and specifically in two forms of safety. The first is a financial safety. And so certain statements have, have been made that... Uh, uh, money should be taken from the rich people because you know all rich people are thieves and they stole that money. I mean, how do you get that much money unless you steal it, right? So you should take the money from rich people and you should secure financially poor people. That, that's what should be done. Well, that, that, that's the idea that if you have money, then you'll be financially safe. Except that's not what Jesus says. You remember in Matthew chapter 19, 16 through 24, the rich young ruler came to Jesus and said, what do I have to do to inherit uh, eternal life? And Jesus said, uh, it's, it's easy. you got to go and uh, uh, fulfill the law. And um, the rich young ruler said, I've done that since I was a little kid. I've been doing that my whole life, obeying it. Perfectly. He says, what else do I have to do? And Jesus says, um, you, you got to go sell everything you have and come follow me. Now, um, I, I think if Jesus were to go to Dave Ramsey and try to get a job as a financial advisor, I don't think Dave Ramsey would have hired him. He's like, no, you don't sell all your things and give it away. No, you got to somehow accumulate and have a nest egg. you got to be able to find stability, a certain financial stability. Jesus says, now you might say, well, he didn't really mean that. Jesus didn't really mean you're supposed to sell everything and follow him. Well, a young rich ruler kind of thought so because he took off upset. He didn't say, oh, that's just metaphorical language that Jesus is using. He left upset because he said, no, I've got too much stuff, and I, 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 I can't get rid of them. I need these things. There's also a physical safety that the world puts a priority on. Uh, this physical safety, it's almost become an idol. It, it's this idea that I must be physically safe at all times. And unless I can determine that the situation in which I'm going to be in, I, I can be 100% sure that I am safe, I'm, I'm just not going to do it. And it kind of goes counter to the priority of Jesus gave in Matthew 16, 24 through 26, where he said that if you want to be my disciple, you must take up your cross and, and follow him. Now, uh, Paul takes that idea in 1 Corinthians chapter. 1, verse 18. And he says that for the world, the cross is foolishness. 
So now when we think about this of taking up our cross and following Jesus, and if, if our thought is, that is crazy, who would do that? What it shows is that we side more with worldly thinking than with how God thinks, right? Because Paul has said that those who think about the cross-centered life, those who think that that's foolishness is part of the world. And we can tell if the world has influenced our thinking, if we've been breathing in the air and it's permeated us when we start thinking the cross is foolishness. I, 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 can't, I can't risk my life. I can't do that. i got to keep myself safe. Whereas Christ says, take up your cross and follow him. There's nothing safe about taking the cross. The cross-centered life is a life of pain and of shame. And there's nothing safe about it. Now, Satan's system puts a certain priority on things. And as we live those priorities out, what we show is either we're favoring the God of this earth, of this air, the prince of the air, or if our priorities show that we trust God and we have accepted his. Now, as we see this, the temptation will live for the dead. Uh, Paul used this metaphor of walking, of how we conduct ourselves. And, and to side yourself with the world is to side yourself against God. Uh, you can't say, well, I love God, but my priorities are the priorities of the world. I mean, that's just incongruent. It, it's illogical to say, I'm going to, I love God with, but my priorities are just like my unsaved neighbors. I mean, they're identical. That, that can't exist. That doesn't go hand in hand. As we think about this, we think about this conduct of life, and it's in the air, as he's saying, and so it really brings into focus this whole helmet of salvation that we see in chapter 6, verse 17. You remember back when when COVID came out, and they said it was in the air. You know, it got transmitted through the air. So there was, a, there was a, a push to somehow filter the air because you needed to protect not getting uh, the virus inside of you. I, I remember there was a, a company that came out with this um, uh, helmet. It was like a, uh, one of the spacemen helmet, you know, thing. It was really big. It was glass. It was like a fishbowl that was big. And it had a backpack that had an air filter. And this company said that they could make it for $800 a piece and they wanted to sell it to the governments of the world. And it was kind of funny that I, I didn't see a single government say, yes, we'll buy it for all our citizens. They were like, well, you know, it's not that serious. We're not going to pay $800 for each one of these things. Uh, but it, it was in the air. So you had to be careful with where you were at, what, what you were breathing, because it would infect you. You, you could get the virus. And, and I think that's very important. It goes along with what we're seeing here, that he's the prince of the air. You have to be very careful about the influences, where you're at, what type of air you're breathing in, because it will permeate you before you know it. You'll be thinking just like the prince of the power of the air. You'll be conducting your life just that same way. If you don't think about it, you're like, I'm safe here. There's only safety in conforming yourself to the principles found in God's Word. Now, as we see this, 
the dead behave by doing what their fleshly mind wants. And we see that in verse 3. Verse 3 says, Among them we, uh, we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Now, um, the, the we there, people have gone into all types of debate, as if in uh, verse 1, you were dead, he's talking to Gentiles, and then in verse 3, he switches to talking about Jews. The idea isn't there, rather he's including himself in this situation, this predicament. Uh, we were all formerly who lived, and the way we lived was the way we were conducting ourselves, behaving. We were behaving ourselves in the lust or in the desires of our flesh. Now that word lust, it's translated lust, but it's just the word for uh, desire, for a longing, a craving. And it's a, really a neutral thing. What qual uh, qualifies it some is it's uh, of our flesh. This, the, our, our nature, our, our earthly condition, our natural condition. So it's a desire for something forbidden. It's a craving, it's a, it's a lust for something that's uh, prohibited. And it says that we lust of, of our flesh, indulging uh, the desires of our flesh and of the mind. That's how we were. <coughs> Uh, nothing is good is mentioned about this, this desire that we had. We were doing the will of the flesh. That's how we were engaging, doing the will of the flesh. It, it, now, this, this idea of the will, we've already seen it several times in, in Ephesians. Uh, Ephesians 1.1, 1, 1, it talks about the will of God. In Ephesians 1.5, it talks about the will of God, or the Father, to, to adopt us through Jesus. In Ephesians 1.9, God revealed his mystery according to his good pleasure of his will. Ephesians 1.11 talks about he's given an inheritance according to his will. Now all of a sudden we see this will, and it's in contrast. God's will is to give us what we don't deserve. Our will is to do what our flesh desires. What a contrast between the two. God desires through his will to sacrifice his son for to purchase our redemption, our will is to do whatever our flesh desires. And, and our mind, what we think on, what we contemplate on. Now, the dead behave by doing what their fleshly mind wants. <clears throat> if you think about that, fleshly-minded people hurt others. We've all been in some type of relationship with somebody who is fleshly-minded. They acted according to their desire, they acted according to their mind, and it was all about their entertainment, their happiness, their comfort, their plans, the things that they wanted to do. And then one day you said to them, you know what, um, I really don't want to go to the beach this year, what I really like to do is go to the mountains, and now all of a sudden your plans and their plans didn't add up, and World War III broke out. <laughs> And you find out how hurtful it is living with a person who lives this way. Now, saying that it's very painful to live with a fleshly-minded person is not enough to cause a single one of us to change our ways. We'll argue and we'll say, but, but I, I will be, I will be fleshly-minded, but I will love people. 
I'll use my gifts and my talents to help. There's, that's not a good way of doing things. To, to make it your life goal to help others and help them find fulfillment is not the way to go. People think that uh, uh, helping others out, but how can you help them? You have to establish some type of judge to determine if the person is helped or not. Some people say, well, I'll be the judge. Well, we become terrible judges. Uh, if we're very honest, if I'm well-rested and well-fed, I'm more willing to help somebody. Whereas if I'm kind of tired and hungry, I'm not so <laughs> inclined to help somebody. So if I make myself the judge of, of helping, that ends up being terrible. You say, well, I'll make the needs of the people the judge of helping. Well, people don't know what they need. Uh, a person who uh, is a drug addict will say, hey, I, I need some drugs. And no, they don't need that. They need help. They need to be restored. So you can't make the people the judge of what they need. You can say, well, we'll let society determine best practices. <laughs> society is not a good judge either. They fluctuate. Every which way the wind turns, one time it's the best practice, next time it's the worst practice ever to do. When you think about this, of how to help people, unless you live for God's glory, you have no standard by which to help people. Unless you're looking to direct people towards God, you, you can't really help them. Unless you have been having your mind transformed through God's word, there's no way that you can really help a person. It'll just all be subjective. Now, the last thing that we see in these, uh, these couple of verses is that the dead are children of wrath. The dead are children of wrath. And that's what we see in the last part of um, verse 3. <clears throat> and we're, by nature, children of wrath, even as the rest. This... That's their condition in which they were. Uh, their natural state was that they were a child, a dependent child, and that dependency was of wrath. God's wrath. And, and it's not just affecting the Ephesians, and it's not just affecting Paul, but it's affecting the rest, all of human society. All of us are affected by this. Children of wrath. Now, when I say that statement, we have to kind of analyze a little bit, what does that mean? Like, how, how are we to take this? So the first question we would want to look at is, is this a true statement? Is it a true statement? In other words, does that idea that's being communicated, that you are children of wrath, of God's wrath, does that correspond to reality? Does it correspond to reality? Like, for example, I say, my car is parked by the tree. And you go out and you see my car, and it is by the tree. You say, hey, that statement corresponds to reality. Does this statement, that they are children of wrath, corresponds to reality? I would hope to say that, I would hope that most of you would say, yes, it, it does. It corresponds to reality. But now we need to take it a step further. 
Is it something that you believe, that being without Christ, they are children of God's wrath? Now, there are some statements that are true, but they really have no impact in our life, right? For example, knowing, for me, knowing that Mount Everest is the tallest mountain in the world has no impact in my life at all. I mean, it, it doesn't change one thing. Monday morning, I'll get up, and it won't change a single thing from what I do. <clears throat> Knowing that the Challenger Deep is the deepest part of the Pacific is a true statement, but it has no effect in my life, none whatsoever. It's true, but it doesn't change me at all. The statement that without Christ, there are children of wrath, of God's wrath, fits into a different category because it places moral responsibility on us if we really believe it. It's like seeing a child sitting in a windowsill and you see that the back part of the house is burning. What, what do you do? Do you not have a moral responsibility to go in and save the child? Even though they don't know they're in danger? I mean, it would be a very cold and callous person that could see the flames and see the child there and understand that the flames will come and burn the child and say, well, I'm kind of late for my coffee break. I'll be back later. That would be a crazy, there's a moral responsibility to do something if the statement is true. It means that those who are here today without Christ are lost and there are children of God's wrath. That's what they're going to get, God's wrath. Now, as we think about that, we see that we must praise God and live for Him because God's great power worked in us who are dead. He worked in us who are dead, and this idea of dead is separation. It would be really sad today if um, a person left and continued being separate from God. They would understand these verses and understand everything, all the definitions, and just continue being separate from God. There's an eternal punishment that comes. There is a way of having salvation, and that's through believing in Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, putting your faith in what Christ did on the cross to save you of your sins. What would also be sad is for a believer who is saved to purposely choose to live separate from God. As in, as in instead of being close, they live according to their, the desire of their flesh, and they live according to their thoughts. That, that would be sad. That when you look at their order of priorities in their life, you say, my goodness, it, it matches my unsaved neighbor to the T. They've made a profession of faith, but the way that they organize their life that shows that they have prioritized everything other than God. And furthermore, when you look at how they live, it shows that the priorities are for their own flesh and for their own thoughts. What, what should be done? I don't want to give you a list of things that you need to do to change. 
because relationships are not a list. They're not a checklist. I took the trash out. I made the bed. See, honey, I love you. It's not a relationship. How do you cultivate a relationship with God? It's not through a list. It's by making his priorities your priorities and living them out. It'd be sad today if you got up and you just left the same. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father, I pray that we will praise you and live for you because your great power has rescued us. Father, if there's someone here who is not saved, that today will be the day of salvation. Father, I pray that at the time of invitation that they'll come forward and that uh, they'll put their faith in Jesus Christ and his work on the cross. Father, I pray for other of us who are here who are saved, but we live for ourselves, for our own passions, our own desires. I pray that today we can repent of that. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.